Thank you so much. Once again, good morning. For those who might not have been with us during the Sunday School Hour, my name is Tom Hoyle with Bible and Science Ministries. And since 1985, our full-time ministry has dealt with the wonderful accuracy of God's Word, especially in terms of history and archaeology and science. We believe, as most of you do, that the more we dig, the better God's Word looks. And as you know, we don't need to prove the Bible, do we? But since the Bible is always true, we would expect to find evidence, and there's lots of such evidence. During the week, I speak in public schools, Christian schools, homeschool groups, Awanas, youth rallies, and that kind of thing. And of course, on Sundays, we get to be in churches like yours. And we cannot thank you enough for your interest and friendship and support, without which I would not have a ministry the rest of the week. During Sunday school, we took... An exciting Indiana Jones look at the accuracy of the New Testament and how archaeology, time and time again, it validates the Bible, doesn't it? During this hour, we get to share with you another program, Seven More Reasons to Trust God's Word. And then tonight, we do hope that you'll come back. Uh, Indeed, let me whet your appetite if you don't mind, okay? In uh, 1943, the U.S. Congress did something extraordinary, meeting and special session. And with the full approval of FDR, Congress unanimously decided that a fifth national monument needed to be authorized for a very special American individual. There were only four of these national monuments at the time. They were for Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln, and Grant. The fifth national monument for an individual American was not for a president. It was for a shy African-American creation scientist named George Washington Carver. He was number five, folks. He beat out everybody else, every other president. He beat out Benjamin Franklin. What was so extraordinary about him? What's kind of sad, in the 1950s, everybody knew who George Washington Carver was. Today, hardly anybody knows who he was. If they know something, all they've heard is he made peanut butter. Guess what? He did not invent peanut butter. He did a great deal more than that. So please come back tonight. It's an extremely unusual program. It's turned out to be our most popular program. I had not planned on that. We'll be taking a look at the most inspirational American ever. We'll be looking at the trials and the triumphs of George Washington Carver and some very valuable lessons that we can learn from him. So we do hope you can come back tonight. I can almost promise you you'll be very glad you did, okay? And bring some uh, friends if you want as well. well anyway, that's, for, that's our commercial for tonight, okay? Uh, before we start this particular program, we've had many, many good questions about the books and discs there. Let me say a quick word about some titles regarding this particular presentation. We mentioned Lee Strollwood during the Sunday School Hour. He wrote... Uh, several best-selling books, which became best-selling DVDs. I got a really good deal on these. You get three one-hour DVD collection, uh, DVDs from Lee Strobel about the wonderful accuracy of the Bible and the Christian faith for the price of one. Don't check your brains at the door. I wish I'd written this book. It's for college students originally, but it is now a best-selling book for everybody from high school to adults. This book is all about the wonderful accuracy of the Word of God, especially in terms of history, archaeology, and science. We will touch briefly upon the scientific accuracy of the Bible today. My favorite book on the subject, Evolution's Achilles Heels. And then one last item. There are, believe it or not, 26 pig books in print. What is a pig book? 
stands for Politically Incorrect Guide. I sell five of them. The best book on Christian apologetics I have ever seen is the Politically Incorrect Guide to the Bible from a Secular Company, believe it or not. Here it is right here. It is a best-selling book, folks, The Pig Guide to the Bible, secular book. And yet I agree with it 99% of the time. This book is all about the exciting accuracy of God's Word. Well, anyway, as far as the DVDs are concerned, uh, I'll just mention one. We are going to touch upon, once again, what our founders thought about God's Word, a terrific new DVD, Miracles in American History. It's all about what our founders thought about God's Word, about God himself, and the importance of the Scriptures. Well, so much for all that. We appreciate your being here today. Let me get out of your way. I think I'll stand over here this time, uh, as opposed to where I was Sunday school hour, because I think it was in a few people's ways. Let's see, I think this is probably the best place to stand. All righty. Thank you so much. Can we have the lights, please? And we'll go ahead and get started. And if you would, yeah, kill all the lights. I don't mean to sound violent, but kill all the lights. We want you to see the slides, not me. As you know, there are all kinds of bestseller lists, aren't there? Well, what's really interesting is the number one best-selling book is never on that list. That's right, folks. The Bible has been the number one best-selling book every single year for over 500 years straight, without exception. And no wonder, folks, God's Word, it is special. 20 billion copies of the Bible or the New Testament or the Gospel of John have been produced. No other book in history even comes close, including Mousy Tongue's little red book. Well, no big surprise in that the Bible, it is the Word of God. As you know, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Uh, last year, we looked at seven great reasons to trust in the Bible. Let's look at seven more reasons to trust in the Bible. And mind you, folks, this is a very big subject. It's like a giant iceberg. And this morning, we really only have time to look at the tip of this giant iceberg of wonderful evidence in support of God's Word. Let's get started with comparative reasons for trusting in the Bible. Up oh, there it is. I'm not an expert, but folks, I have studied comparative religions uh, extensively. I've read the Quran several times, word for word, likewise with the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita, the writings of our Hindu and our Buddhist friends, and in my own humble opinion, no contest between these writings and the writings of the Word of God. Case in point, the subject of the fairer gender. The fact is, the good news is, in Eastern religions... Uh, they take a rather neutral view regarding the fairer gender. They do exalt ladies because, of course, they're necessary for the propagation of the race. Okay, and welcoming people to First Baptist Church. <laughs> okay, there we go. Uh, the ladies are necessary for us to carry on the race. The bad news is, folks, generally in Eastern religions, women are considered dangerous because their physical beauty is considered to be an unnecessary distraction to men as they seek a spiritual nirvana. So you women are getting blamed for that, all right? But what about the Quran? Well, very different picture. Folks, in the Quran, uh, we are told the good news is, is that females are to be supported and shown mercy. I didn't say love, I said shown mercy. On the other hand, there's a long list of negative things about the ladies. For the sake of time, we'll drop down to the bottom of the list. Wifely discipline. In Surah 4 of the Quran, we have a description of 
what women are like in terms of wives. Men are in charge of women because Allah has made the one superior to the other and because they spend their wealth to maintain them. Good women are obedient. As for those from whom you fear disobedience, admonish them and banish them to beds apart and scourge them. Well, American women did not like the scourge part very much. So the next Quran that came out changed it to beat them. Once again, American ladies, not too happy with that. So then they retranslated it to beat lightly. And I asked a Muslim cleric one time what that means to beat lightly. And he said, well, if you beat your wife, you're using a closed fist. If you beat her lightly, you have an open fist. In other words, you slap her. That's beating your wife lightly. And then, of course, the latest Quran, I have copies of all four, the latest Quran says that you are to spank your wife if she gets out of line. Well, folks, again, I've gone through the Quran twice, word for word. I went through a concordance, and you know what? I'm just giving you the facts here. Nowhere in the entire Quran is a husband told to love his wife. In fact, nowhere in the Quran do they have anything like 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. God does not love Muslims. He has mercy on Muslims. And women are to be shown mercy. They're not shown love. Speaking of which, Edith Hamilton is considered to be the greatest female classical scholar of all time. I've read her book on mythology three times. It's considered the premier book on Greek and Roman mythology. Guess what she said about the Bible? It is the only literature in the world up to our century that looks at women as human beings no better and no worse than men. So, folks, we owe a great debt to God's word because it has a very enlightened view regarding the fairer gender. Truly, sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. But for the sake of time, got to keep moving. We turn from comparative reasons for trusting in the Bible, especially regarding a subject of women, to teleological reasons. What's teleology? As you might already know, it concerns the origin and nature of design in nature. Design in nature. And as you might recall, we have a whole program about this divine design. Of the many evidences that point to biblical creation versus evolution, folks, design in nature is the most scriptural, it's the most effective, the most powerful, and frankly, the most interesting. Design in nature gave Charles Darwin a great deal of trouble. No wonder Charles Darwin admitted, as he tried to explain design in nature from evolution, as he tried to do that, he used words like maybe, possibly, and hopefully to describe evolution over 800 times. We could go on and on, but may I give you my three favorite examples from Charles Darwin. These are great for witnessing purposes, young people. You may want to jot these down on a page in your Bible. First of all, Charles Darwin said every time he looked at a honeycomb in a beehive, it filled him with panic. They fill me with panic, but for different reasons. Darwin could not understand how a humble little bee learned how to build a highly complicated beehive. We believe the Creator, the Lord Jesus Christ, gave these little creatures the instinct. We could go on and on, but Darwin also said, regarding peacocks, that they made him sick. Why would beautiful peacock feathers make Charles Darwin sick? He could not understand how beautiful peacock feathers evolved from frayed reptilian scales. Folks, 
we believe peacocks were created, and they did not evolve from some sort of dinosaurs. But moving on, number three, Darwin said, eyes, especially human eyes, made him cold all over. Why? As you probably already know, the human eye is more complicated than any camera made by man. If you go to a camera store and tell them their cameras happened by accident or chance from an explosion in a factory of metal and plastic and wire and glass, they'd say you are crazy, right? Folks, cameras don't happen by accident. Eyes don't happen by accident either. It's only logical. In fact, Charles Darwin not only said eyes made him cold, he said that to suppose that the eye with all of its contrivances could have been formed through natural selection seems, I fairly confess, absurd to the highest degree. And we'd have to agree. But, folks, the number one thing about the human eye that blows me away, right here, we're looking at electron microscope photographs of human eye lens cells. These are living cells of life. Each one is a brick with six ball and socket joints. They're greenish here because they've been dyed so we can see them. Ordinarily, they're clear because, folks, these cells constitute your lens in your eye. And this, the cells contract and expand as they automatically focus the incoming light onto your uh, retina. Do you think those evolve by accident or chance? I don't think so. We maintain it takes more faith to believe in evolution than to believe in creation by God, especially regarding the human eye. I realize we watch sci-fi movies talking about artificial eyes, sci uh, uh, you know, um, I just forgot the word he used in a $6 million man. A bionic, bionic eyes. Folks, it's all science fiction. The finest artificial human eye today is the size of a softball. And all it can do is determine shades of black. That's the best we can do, folks. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, aren't we? Let's review, okay? Charles Darwin, bless his heart, regarding design, he said beehives made him what? Anybody? Made him, let's use the exact words for the sake of accuracy, okay? Made him panic, okay? Charles Darwin said peacock feathers made him what? Okay, we got some good responses there. Made him sick, and then finally eyes made him cold. Anyway, like I was saying, good for witnessing, and actually I've had several teenagers do term papers in biology class using those three. Look at creation, look at evolution. We believe that teleology or design in nature points to creator God's word tells us, as you know, for every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. Nobody thinks Mount Vernon designed itself, right? Nobody thinks Mount Vernon built itself. But the universe, much more complicated than Mount Vernon, right? If somebody designed and made Mount Vernon, somebody designed and made the universe. It's only logical, isn't it? But moving on, for the sake of time, so you can go home and have lunch. Folks, we turn to medical reasons for trusting in the Bible. The fact is, folks, it can be hazardous to your health not to believe in the Bible. There are three examples I'd like to share with you. Examples that we find covered in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Medical advice that if people had heeded sooner, many lives might have been spared. Number one. Disease, the Black Death or bubonic plague in the past had killed a quarter of Europe. Absolutely devastating. In 1665, it appeared again, this time in London, England. 
The civil authorities were terrified and with good reason. They asked the clergy, what do we do? What does the Bible recommend we do in a time like this? The clergy did not know why, but the clergy said, according to the Bible, we must quarantine the sick people from the healthy ones. Nobody had any idea why you should do that, but they did. Guess what? The plague died off because somebody decided to obey the Bible. Smooth move. And of course, quarantine to this day is sometimes necessary in terms of infection. But moving on from disease, we turn to hygiene. In April of 1847, Dr. Ignaz Semmelweis went to work in this hospital right here in Vienna, Austria. He was appalled. One out of six women that would enter that hospital to have a baby would die. One out of six. The death rate at home was only one out of 20. Why was it more dangerous to go to the hospital to have a baby than to stay at home and have the baby? Semmelweis wasn't technically a Christian. He was Jewish, but he believed in the Old Testament. He discovered a revolutionary new medical procedure. What was that? Anybody? Washing your hands. Exactly. Semmelweis said, from now on, all doctors and nurses must wash their hands before they examine one of these expectant ladies, especially if they have just been involved with an autopsy. The fact is, folks, the morgue was right next to the maternity ward. Some poor mother would die. They would wheel her body into the morgue. They would do an autopsy. The doctor would simply take an old rag, wipe his hands off on an old rag, and go back into the maternity ward and infect another mother. And this went on and on and on. Well, Semmelweis came along and said, no way. From now on, you've got to wash your hands. And unfortunately, that annoyed a lot of doctors. They were being told that they were the reason why all these women were dying. But you know what? They started washing their hands. The death rate went from 1 out of 6 to 1 out of 84. Now, you would think Semmelweis would become a national hero for saving the lives of so many mothers. Instead, the doctors were furious at him for accusing them of killing the mothers. They ran him out of the hospital. The exact same thing happened at a second hospital. Semmelweis would go insane and die. At any rate, ladies, speaking of ladies, the founder of gynecology was a very devout, Bible-believing, born-again Christian creation scientist and physician who's mainly famous, though, for his discovery of anesthetic surgery. Before he came along, if you needed an operation, they literally knocked you out. They hit you on the head, or they gave you some rum to drink and make you drunk, or they gave you a piece of wood or a leather block to chew on in agony as the doctors worked on you. His name, Dr. James Simpson. At a medical conference, he said his greatest discovery, though, was that I have a savior. By the way, speaking of surgery, the founder of antiseptic surgery was another devout, born-again, Bible-believing creation scientist and medical doctor, Dr. Joseph Lister. This man is given a credit for saving more lives with his research than anyone in history except for Louis Pasteur, who, by the way, was another devout. Bible-believing creation scientist and physician. If his name rings a bell with you, oh, I'm sorry, I threw this in for free. He said one time, I am a believer in the fundamental doctrines of Christianity. 
If this name rings a bell with you, it's because Listerine was named after him, now available in Minty Fresh. But folks, besides the matter of disease, besides the matter of hygiene, the Bible has something to say about something we take for granted and its importance, blood. Folks, the fact of the matter is, up until the end of the 19th century, physicians commonly thought that if you were sick, the best way to heal you was to drain blood out of you. It was called bloodletting. This is a bloodletting lancelet I have in my collection at home. It's like a Swiss Army pocket knife. Up until the end of the 19th century, it was commonly believed, especially in the Old West, if you were sick, the best thing to do was for a doctor or a barber to take one of these round blades you see right there and make an incision in your vein inside your elbow and start draining your blood. Folks, lots of people died that way, didn't they? Including George Washington. Most historians believe that George Washington came down with some kind of bronchitis, but he didn't die from the bronchitis. George Washington died, they think, because Washington had three medical doctors drain out over three pints of his blood. Washington bled to death. This doctor, by the way, Dr. William Harvey, don't know if he was a Christian, but he was a very devout believer in the Bible. He discovered the circulatory system. Before he came along, people thought blood just sloshed around in your bodies like the tides of the seas. The Bible, of course, all along has been saying what? For the life of the flesh is in the blood. Blood is a good thing, isn't it? It's not something that you want to go draining out of people, right? But next, one of my favorite subjects, archaeological reasons for trusting in the Bible. We talked about New Testament archaeology during the uh, Sunday school hour. But folks, once again, let's take an Indiana Jones look at the Old Testament and its wonderful archaeological accuracy. And by the way, as we saw during Sunday school, many people have to come to Christ as a result. Case in point, Sir Dr. Frederick Kenyon. Kenyon, who was past director of the world's greatest archaeological museum, the British Museum in London, he said, as we mentioned in Sunday school, archaeology has not yet said its last word, but the results already confirm what faith would suggest that the Bible can do nothing but gain from an increase of knowledge. Case in point, critics of the Bible said the biblical account of David and Goliath was bogus, that it was a fairy tale like Robin Hood or something like that. Critics aren't saying that anymore. First of all, folks, they have concluded that there really were Philistines after all, and there really was a King David. And there really was a battle between the Philistines and the Israelites in the Battle of Elah. In Tel Dan in northern Israel, folks, they have found a monument dating to the time of King Omri of the Bible about 2,800 years ago, referring to the house of King David. In fact, David's house has now been found. There was a David. We now know there were Philistines. There's no reason to doubt a battle between David and Goliath. So much more could be said about that, but for the sake of time, we turn to David's son, the Midas of the Bible, Solomon, right? And folks, here we are, speaking of Solomon, at the famous southeastern corner of the outer temple wall uh, in Jerusalem. On the right-hand side is the wall, now confirmed, built by Solomon's people. On the left-hand side is what King Herod built, as we talked about during Sunday school. 
But what really gets me uh, excited gives me even goosebumps. We're now in Egypt, in Karnak. On that wall right there, folks, we have an actual reference to David and Solomon and Pharaoh and Jerusalem and the gold and the silver and Jerusalem and the palace and the temple. All on that wall, folks, agreeing with the biblical narrative. Or moving on, for the sake of time, in terms of Old Testament archaeology, we come to the Bible's wickedest woman, Jezebel. According to the Bible, she was married to wicked king Ahab. Critics have said, no Ahab, no Jezebel. They didn't live. They can't say that anymore because archaeology, it agrees with the Bible. Folks, for starters, it's called the Moabite stone, about three and a half feet tall. It's in the Louvre of uh, Paris. The Moabite stone mentions King Ahab of the Bible by name and how he was defeated by the uh, Moabites. Ahab and Jezebel were wicked. God must punish unrepentant sin. God had to punish Ahab and Jezebel and replace them with, I call him the hot rod driver of the Bible. The Bible says that he was Jehu, son of Nimshi. The Bible says you could always tell that he was coming because he driveth furiously. He had a lead foot, which leads me to believe he was probably a Baptist. Well, folks, here we are in the British Museum once again. I am pointing at my favorite Old Testament artifact of them all. This is the Black Obelisk of Shalmaneser. Now, is it just me, or is that a really cool-sounding name? The Black Obelisk of Shalmaneser. Just gives you goosebumps, doesn't it? I'm pointing at it here, and I'm pointing specifically at, guess who he is? King Jehu of the Bible. Critics said he did not live. Well, guess what? We've got a picture of him, folks. He's mentioned by name, not having a good day. He's begging for mercy, literally on his hands and knees, at the feet of the victorious Assyrians. An actual reference and picture of a biblical king that the critics said did not exist. The critics were wrong. The Bible always turns out to be right. Or, fast forward, folks, in the Old Testament, to good king Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a very, very good king, very godly man, known for his building projects. We mentioned that briefly during Sunday school. And folks, guess what? God would vindicate him. We mentioned the Siloam inscription during Sunday school. Here it is again. Guess what? It mentions good King Hezekiah by name. It mentions Hezekiah's tunnel by name. It mentions the Assyrians and Jerusalem all by name. A very biblical king who definitely did exist in history and was very, very busy. But my second favorite Old Testament artifact, Sennacherib's prism. It also it is in the British Museum in London, also known as Taylor's Cylinder. It's about a foot tall. It is a six-sided clay cuneiform document. It mentions Hezekiah of the Bible by name. It mentions the Assyrians who were attacking Hezekiah's people by name in the capital city of Jerusalem, mentioned by name. It talks about Sennacherib and the Assyrians besieging Jerusalem, once again, all by name. The historian then brags and brags, rather presumptuously, way too early. He's counting his chickens before they're hatched. The historian brags about all the people Sennacherib's army are going to kill. 
All the gold and silver they're going to get. All the other survivors they're going to enslave. Then, folks, on the next line, which, um, does this have a pointer on it? A red pointer? No? Okay. Uh, I'll tell you what. How about if I just do it the old-fashioned way? <laughs> there is kind of a line right there, about, a, uh, what, 25% of the way down? Folks, there's all this bragging above the line. Below the line, the historian, after all the bragging, completely changes the subject and never mentions the siege or Jerusalem or the war at all. Why? Back then, when kings lost major battles, historians who wanted to live a long time changed the subject. As you might recall, the angel of the Lord conducted a one-man Green Beret commando raid and wiped out the Assyrian army, so Sennacherib never got to do anything his, histo- his historian was bragging about. But next, the Babylonians conquered the Assyrians. The Babylonian chronicles folks, like this one here, mentioned the Jewish kings of Jehoiakim and Zedekiah by name. In fact, folks, so far in ancient records, 12 different biblical individuals have been found mentioned by name. These are all individuals that critics said never lived. Uh, yes, they did. Everybody says they did back then. God's Word talks about, as we saw in Sunday school, real people, real places, real times, and most of all, a real Savior. We could go on and on about the Old Testament. We did so last year in a special program. What about the New Testament? Talked about that during Sunday school. If you were here, we, you might recall we mentioned the first advent of our Lord Jesus Christ. How the critics said that Luke chapter 2 was bogus and how biblical archaeology has completely vindicated Luke chapter 2. Every detail has been historically confirmed, including the taxation, the census, Cybernerius, and everything else. The critics said were all wrong. The Bible turned out to be all right. For one thing, records were found from Roman Empire in Antioch of Pisidia, agreeing with the Bible. Well, now, we could go on and on, but can't keep talking about that, and as a result, run out of time. Compare the Bible, archaeologically speaking, to other religious writings. Case in point, the Book of Mormon of our LDS friends. The Book of Mormon, folks, has all kinds of uh, very impressive stories that our LDS friends uh, like to teach. I had the opportunity, and I won't bore you with the reasons how it came about. I was a guest of the Roman Church, I mean, Roman Church, the Mormon Church, uh, in Salt Lake City for an entire day. My wife and I. Uh, we were wined and dined and shown everything, etc., 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 folks. And they kept going on and on about the exciting accounts in the Book of Mormon. Case in point. We were told about the two major battles that were fought in upstate New York. Two battles that totaled casualties exceeding almost uh, two and a quarter million men. Folks, that's more than all of the casualties in America's wars put together. Two battles. Two and a quarter million people were killed in upstate New York near Mount Camorra near Rochester. Two years ago, I went to Hill Camara. I went to the Mormon Visitor Center there. I talked to their scholars right there. I climbed Hill Camara, spoken of in the Book of Mormon. Folks, do you know how much they have found to document the Book of Mormon and those two battles around Hill Camara? Ma'am, you have a very bad attitude, but you're right. She's doing a big zero. 
That's what they found right there. Zip, zero, zilch, nada. One Mormon scholar said, well, we found some arrowheads. I said, no, sir, I already checked, okay? Those arrowheads are post-Columbian arrowheads from Native Americans. They're not from pre-Columbian days. They're not from what you're talking about. He says, well, there are those people who think that. (laughs) Folks, there is no archaeological basis for the Book of Mormon, Doctrines and Covenants, or Pearl of Great Price. Indeed, more and more of our Mormon friends are saying, Hill Cumorah is the wrong place. This is not where the battles were fought after all. No wonder it was mentioned during Sunday school. Nelson Glick, very famous archaeologist, front, front cover of Time magazine, that's how famous he was. He was the inspiration for the character of Indiana Jones, famous part-time spy for the Allies during World War II. Nelson Glick, he said, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or in exact detail historical statements in the Bible. Truly, folks, according to Luke, the stones literally would cry out in testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what? They do. The stones do cry out. But for the sake of time, Got to keep moving to textual reasons for trusting in the Bible. Folks, it's downright embarrassing how many ancient manuscripts we have of the New Testament. 5,500 copies alone in the original Greek used by God when he inspired the apostles to write the books of the New Testament. These documents go far in doing away with the bizarre claims of, for example, the uh, Judas Gospel that was pushed by National Geographic magazine. They go far in doing away with the bizarre claims of, bless his heart, uh, Don Brown regarding uh, the Da Vinci Code, for example. And likewise, folks, the Old Testament. As you probably know, the New Testament was originally written in Koine Greek. The Old Testament originally in classic Hebrew with a tiny bit of Aramaic. And folks, they have found plenty of ancient copies of the Old Testament that verify the accuracy. The most famous copies of the Old Testament being, by far, the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls, as you might already know, they represent darkness. Okay, we'll skip that one. The Dead Sea Scrolls, folks, uh, represent the greatest archaeological discovery of the 20th century. And folks, they were copied right here. This is called the Scriptatorium of Kerbet Qumran, where approximately about 100 B.C. or so, the occupants of this community overlooking the Dead Sea, they copied God's Word, the Old Testament. They've actually found uh, small containers with dried ink in a long table where the scholars would spend uh, many, many hours each day copying, for example, the Dead Sea Scrolls. May I ask, how many here went to see the Dead Sea Scroll exhibit at the Pacific Science Center a couple years ago? A number of you. How many of you were disappointed? I was. (laughs) Folks, our Israeli friends did not send us their best. They sent us scraps. Folks, the fact is the Dead Sea Scrolls are astonishing. The problem is the Israelis don't let the good stuff out of the country. You've got to go to Jerusalem, to the Shrine of the Book. At the shrine of the book, they've got most of the great Dead Sea Scrolls. 
And what's really interesting, they've got the museum design folks that in the event of a war, all the scrolls lower down into the floor, into the basement, and are protected in bomb-proof shelters. Uh, my favorite scroll is the Isaiah scroll, which the Israelis will not let leave the country. I can partly see why. The Isaiah scroll is 12 inches wide and 24 feet long. How many here are glad for the invention of books? They're wonderful, folks. Back then, you carried around a great big arm of scrolls. And if pastor said, turn to Isaiah 53, you would probably say, 53? How about Isaiah chapter 2? That'd be a lot easier to find, not Isaiah 53. So pastor's got to wait as you fumble through your scroll, rolling it along until you finally hit Isaiah chapter 53. We're very grateful to God for the invention of books as opposed to scrolls. But probably the most interesting of all the Dead Sea Scrolls, and these, by the way, verify God has preserved his word, folks. The Dead Sea Scrolls date to 200 B.C. They have found copies of every Old Testament book except for Esther for some reason. And folks, once again, they verify God's word. The most interesting one, the Jordanians actually got it. The Israelis would love to get it. It is the Isaiah Copper Scroll, a scroll made out of copper foil. I call this God's heavy metal. But folks, here's an interesting metal scroll. It's not part of the Dead Sea Scrolls. It was found in the ruins of Jerusalem. It's called the Jeremiah Scroll. It is made out of silver. It contains the oldest known Hebrew ever found. It is a benediction from the Bible. Specifically speaking, folks, Numbers 6, verses 24 through 26. On that silver scroll, the Jeremiah scroll, which dates to 600 B.C., and it's called the Jeremiah scroll because it dates to the time of Jeremiah, we find this benediction, very famous, The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Last or not almost last, sorry. Almost last, but not least, we turn to patriotic reasons for trusting in the Bible. Folks, as you know from times past, we've talked about how in many schools, they're not teaching the whole story about America's wonderful Christian heritage based upon God's word, correct? We owe a great debt to God's word. Our founding fathers loved God's word, almost every one of them and thought it was absolutely vital. George Washington, very famous for having said, it is impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. Thomas Jefferson, he said, believe it or not, the Bible is the cornerstone of liberty. Incidentally, as you know, in the past, we've referred to how many people claim Thomas Jefferson was a deist. A deist back then was somebody who believed that God made everything and then just walked away. Folks, I don't think Jefferson was a Christian, but he had a high regard for the Bible. And the fact is, Jefferson did believe in the power of prayer and in the providence of God, which means he wasn't a very good deist at all. Moving on, for the sake of time, he wasn't perfect, but Andrew Jackson says something I think is quite awesome. That book, sir, is a rock on which our republic rests. Or, fast forward once again for the sake of time, Daniel Webster, I'm sorry, Noah Webster, father of our dictionary, the scriptures ought to form the basis of all our civil constitutions um, and laws. 
Now we turn to Daniel Webster, famous American orator and senator. If we abide by the principles taught in the Bible, our country will go on prospering. Fast forward to Abraham Lincoln. The Bible, he said, is the best gift God has ever given a man. All the good from the Savior is communicated to us through this book. Ulysses S. Grant, one of his successors, hold fast to the Bible, he said, as a a sheet anchor of your liberties. To the influence of this book are we indebted, and to this we must look as our guide in the future. Or fast forward to Benjamin Harrison. President Harrison said, if you take out your statutes, your constitution, your family life, all that is taken from the sacred book, what would there be left to bind society together? Fast forward to Horace Greeley, famous American journalist. It is impossible to mentally or socially enslave a Bible-reading people. President William McKinley, the more profoundly we study this wonderful book and the more closely we observe its wonderful precepts, the, the better citizens we become and the higher will be our destiny as a nation. One of my favorite presidents, for all kinds of reasons, Theodore Roosevelt, very politically incorrect. He said, the teachings of the Bible are so interwoven and entwined with our whole civic and social life that it would be literally impossible for us to figure ourselves what that life would be if these standards were removed. The other Roosevelt, FDR, we cannot read the history of our nation without reckoning with the place the Bible has occupied in the advances of the republic. Dwight D. Eisenhower, the Bible is endorsed by the ages. Our civilization is built upon its words. And no other book is there such a collection of inspired wisdom, reality, and hope. Ronald Reagan, of the many influences that have shaped the United States into a distinctive nation and people, none may be said to be more fundamental and enduring than the Bible. We could go on and on, folks. Truly, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Now, finally, last item. Some of you are thinking, let my people go. We come to spiritual reasons for trusting in the Bible. God's word tells us in John, how be it when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you unto all truth. If you're a born-again Christian, you know what John's talking about here, don't you? If you're a born-again Christian, you just know when you read the Bible, it's the Word of God because of the Holy Spirit, right? Woodrow Wilson, not perfect. I think he was a Christian, though. He said it very well. When you have read the Bible, you know it is the Word of God. William Tyndale, in my humble opinion, the greatest English-speaking Christian of all time. I don't want to chase a rabbit, folks. I want you to go to lunch, but the fact of the matter is, he is the first person to translate God's word into printed English from the original Greek and Hebrew. He changed history. He changed England, and then, of course, after that, indirectly, America. William Tyndale was called God's outlaw. He was a fugitive from King Henry VIII for 11 years. And he was finally martyred, all because he translated the Bible for ordinary people to read. William Tyndale said regarding the Bible, We know that this word is from God because of divine fire, it consumes our hearts. Last, but most of all, not least, we turn to the Lord Jesus Christ himself and 
He tells us, folks, regarding us, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. We could go on and on, folks, but there you have it. Just 14 of the many reasons why we should trust in the Bible. 14 reasons that make the Bible very, very special. And as the lights come back on, we do hope and pray that everybody here, myself included, we're obeying God's Word, right? And we hope and pray that for starters, all of us here have obeyed God's Word by accepting the Creator as Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we hope and pray that all of us here are obeying Him and living for Him, right? We thank you so much for coming. We thank you a great deal for your patience. I can assure you we will make sure that when you sit down that George Washington Carver is all ready to go tonight. Okay, folks, we're going to get here early and we're going to nail that down. Won't be any delay. But before we go, uh, could I pray, please? And then we'll turn the services back over to your leadership for them to conclude as they see fit. Uh, if you would, if you would please stand for us. Let me pray. And then you can go home and have lunch. I would be happy to talk with you in the entry area if you have any questions or comments or need resources. Let's turn to the Lord. Our God, we thank you so much that your word always turns out to be true. We thank you so much that people like William Tyndale risked their lives to translate your word from the Greek and Hebrew into English so that we could understand it and obey it and learn how to go to heaven and learn how to live on this earth. We hope and pray if there's anybody here who's not yet obeyed your word and accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, that today would be that day. And we pray that all of us would obey your word, we would study your word, we would learn your word, and share it with others. We pray for blessings upon the service tonight, your blessings upon all these folks here this afternoon. We thank you for the country that you gave us. We thank you for the opportunity to serve you in this country and to share your word with others in this country. And we thank you for all this. In Jesus' name, amen.